1: This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This
2: week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. His name is Steve Murray, and he has a storied background in the world of venture investing. He is currently a partner at Revolution Growth. He spent 20 years at SoftBank working with a legendary list of companies. And we very much get in the weeds uh, about startup and venture investing. If this is an area that is of an interest to you as either a career or just a passing fancy, if you're intrigued by technology, finance, startups, fintech, uh, sports technology, wearable technology, well, then you're going to find this conversation quite intriguing. So with no further ado, my conversation... With Steve Murray. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Steve Murray. He is a managing partner at Revolution Growth, a venture capital fund that specializes in technology, software, wearables, and a number of other fascinating uh, tech subjects. He was a partner and managing director at SoftBank for 20 years. Working with such companies as Yahoo, ETrade, GeoCities, Ziff Davis, Buzzfeed, and many others, he is a current board of director member at Fitbit, where he has served since 2013. Steve Murray, welcome to Bloomberg. Welcome, thank you for having me, Barry. I appreciate it. So let's start with SoftBank because you were there for 20 years, um, both
3: as a, a director and a partner for for a large part of that. What did you do at SoftBank? At SoftBank, twenty years is a long time. I can't imagine that I was there for that long, but it was it was a lot of fun. I guess on, in summary, I got to sort of be on the front row of the sidelines of the commercial development of the internet. So what I did, what I did functionally as I started uh, there. What to, years were that? What, so I started in nineteen ninety six. Okay, so, so the right internet at, is
2: really ramping up. Really,
3: at that point. the internet was just starting, and and SoftBank had just acquired. Companies like Ziff Davis, Kingston Technologies, Comdex Trade Shows, N Plus I Trade Shows. And so there were seven different operating units that had had been put together here in the U.S. And outside of Japan, there was a grand total of four people that worked for SoftBank. Uh So I joined initially from an infrastructure perspective to really put together all the information systems, the accounting, legal, tax, and other... Activities for the and in managing that and reporting into Japan and working with them on their strategies there. That quickly, as the commercial development of the internet sort of moved along rapidly, the tasks that I were doing really moved much more into the investing side of life. Which really, starting in current the early two thousands, I spent most of my time on the investing side. What what was the relationship between Yahoo and SoftBank way back when? Yeah, so that's a that's a one of the. Great stories of lore. Which is, um, uh, SoftBank made an investment in Yahoo and owned about a third of Yahoo. Mm-hmm. At the same time that they made the investment in in Yahoo US, at the time that was a huge investment. I think it was about a hundred million dollars, and they bought a third of it. Right? Wow. To put things in context. That's amazing. Right. It was a uh, it was a pre IPO investment, where uh, Masayoshi Son and Jerry Yang got together and decided that Masa wanted to be a big partner here in the US of of Yahoo's. But also at the same time, they created Yahoo Japan, Mm -hmm. uh, which was a real partnership, actually I think uh, it was a 60-40 partnership or something like that, between SoftBank as the controlling and managing Mm -hmm. partner of that entity and Yahoo US. They also created Yahoo Korea, Yahoo UK, and some other things. So there was really a global partnership that was set up. And that really was, on some level, the basis for a lot of SoftBank's US and other internet uh, activities, really. You know, that's the flagship investment early on in the the SoftBank story on the internet.
2: So it's funny to think of you as a venture investor because your background is that of an accountant. And, and maybe it's my bias, <laughs> but I think of accountants as steady, risk-averse, <laughs> dotting I's and crossing T's and making sure double-entry accounting adds up. How did you transition from a a staid profession of an accountant to something that's got a
3: touch of cowboy in it. Yeah, I'd say a touch of cowboy might be an understatement someday, (laughs) but uh, I guess it takes all types, Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, I actually really enjoyed my time at Deloitte and was, my background is, I was a CPA for a while, I uh, was in the accounting and auditing function within uh, within uh, Deloitte for six years. So I, my first six years of my career were there. Sp- I spent an inordinately large amount of time on companies, and I think it, why it translated to my SoftBank activities, it spent, I spent a large amount of my time on companies that were heavily transaction oriented. So companies like Primark that was buying a lot of uh, data service companies at the time uh, a company like Harcourt General at the time that was buying Harcourt Brace Jovanovich and mm-hmm. Neiman Marcus and other things. So I was, I was involved in the assignments that I w- ended up being on were very transactional oriented. So they were do you, doing a lot of acquisitions and they were doing a lot of activity.
2: Accounting skills would come in very handy with
3: that. C- accounting skills come in very handy. I do find that my background of accounting skills is actually quite helpful with the companies, particularly as they scale. As they say, there's, there's, uh, there's nothing like that ruins a good story like facts. And accountants on some <laughs> level have facts, which is, how are the companies doing versus their plan? How much cash is left in the bank? Uh, can we last another year or five years? How would we be viewed relative to comparable companies in the marketplace? So um, although for sure you know the, the venture capital market is a lot of an art project, not necessarily a pure science project, mm-hmm. uh, I think having the background in accounting actually has been helpful. So tell us a little bit about
2: Revolution Growth. What sort of companies do you invest in? And give us some examples
3: of, of some of the companies you're sure. working with currently. Sure. So Revolution Growth is a, a growth fund based out of Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. Uh, it was started maybe ten years ago by uh, three folks that previously were partners together at AOL. So it was Steve Case, mm-hmm. Ted Leonsis, and Don Davis started Revolution. That,
2: that's a murderer's row, right? There thing. we go. Right? That, I have three more podcasts.
3: To do. <laughs> I'm sure they'd be happy to come. So the three of them started Revolution uh, a number of years ago really to do what, at the time, they were trying to figure out what was big and what was next for them in their careers after they left the AOL situation uh, after that merger. And they ultimately created a series of investment funds, one of them being Revolution Growth. Revolution Growth invests in uh, companies that are as the name would suggest at the growth stage so bigger companies not smaller but mm-hmm. not generally not billion dollar companies generally companies that have 20 30 50 a hundred million dollars of revenue we generally invest 20 to 50 million dollars in each opportunity we usually have a pretty significant minority ownership so we don't we're not a private equity shop where we take control of businesses mm-hmm. we are more like a venture capital uh, up even on, on some level structured like an early-stage venture capital firm where we own 5% of a business, 10% of a business, but we get involved as the business is really starting to scale. And so the types of businesses that we get involved in generally are technology-related businesses, but they can be across a number of different verticals, right? So we have uh, companies actually as diverse and versus uh, some of the folks that we work with as co-investors um, in – fast-casual restaurants, so we're investors in Sweetgreen, we're investors in Cava that are both using technology to change the supply chain and change the ordering patterns and change the—so that's a fast-casual thing that we think is really big. We're involved in um, fintech, so we recently made an investment in a company called Tala, which is doing uh, micro loans in, in developing nations through the use of information on, on people's cell phone. Uh, we're involved in sports-related technologies like DraftKings, where I'm on the board. Sport Radar, which we're involved in. Uh, I'm sure we'll get to to that topic later. Uh, we're involved in uh, data companies, places like Uptake in Chicago, mm-hmm. Tempest in Chicago, uh, Interactions in Boston. So those are the types of companies. So they tend to be companies that, when we we get involved in them, tend to have substantive revenue, but not a billion dollars of revenue we tend to put 20 to 50 million dollars to work in almost every instance we're on the board of these companies and we serve to try to you know help them out get them through their journey and use the experiences and references and networks that we have to try to be, make them help make them successful you referenced SoftBank earlier and i have
2: to ask you they now have a venture fund it's 100 billion dollars that's an insane amount of money for something like that uh, what does this say about what's going on in that space? And is this part of what's driving valuations at, at firms like Uber and WeWorks through the roof?
3: Well, clearly there's been a lot of talk about SoftBank's Vision Fund. Um, I, I think it's actually uh, – it's really an amazing thing. And – what does it say about the market and what does it say about where we are in the market and things? I I think if we take a half a step back, what it says is certainly something like this was not possible 10 years ago, as an example. So what's changed? Is that
2: true? A decade ago, you could not have had a fund this song. I don't I mean,
3: so. outside of the financial crisis. I don't believe so.
2: Just there wasn't the appetite for it or I, there wasn't the capital for
3: it? I think maybe a, a combination of both, but mm. I think what... Um, has come to more clarity for people which makes something like this possible, although it is an event of one, so you can't make too many broad conclusions about it. And it is sponsored by Masa, who is one of the world's great deal makers. Mm -hmm. So I'm not suggesting that there will be multiple more $100 billion funds, but I think what it does suggest is that the world has recognized the importance of technology in major industries and therefore the ability to deploy big amounts of capital in those. So things like... Industries like real estate, industries like healthcare, financial systems, and others are really now being fundamentally changed by technology in a way that is really just starting to happen, although there's been a lot of talk about it. you know, The industrial complex and the like, those things are really now starting to change materially, and those bring, give real opportunities to deploy real amounts of capital. We, say, we see this with a bunch of different opportunities that, that SoftBank is deploying. So, I think that they are a hugely influential investor in the marketplace. I don't think a fund like this was possible 10 years ago. I'm not sure there's 10 more of them that are coming down the path, but I do think it speaks to the importance of technology in major industries that maybe previously had been a bit more immune to it. So
2: not too long ago, I had a conversation with Benedict Evans of Andreessen
3: Horowitz, and his
2: comment was there aren't um, technology companies anymore Everybody's a technology company. If you're not using tech in in the most optimal or most productive way, you're just going to be left behind.
3: I think that's a fair and accurate summary. I do think there are obviously some and many uh, companies that are using it more effectively. There are mm-hmm. industries that allow for it to be used more effectively the pace at which some of these industries are going to be able to adopt the technology is not at the same pace that we've seen in some other industries mm-hmm. so as an example when you talk about healthcare and you talk about you know money supply and you talk about things like that that are heavy heavily regulated the pace at which some of these changes are going to be happening is not going to be like how long it took Facebook to be public. Kind
2: of slow for, for changes in that area. It's going to take so, time. So let's talk a little bit about health. I see you're wearing uh, the bigger, what is that called, the Versa? This is called the Ionic. Oh, the Ionic. So that's the big fit, but I'm wearing the Charge 2. Excellent. My wife, I, see. I had the original one, which I truth be told, I didn't love, but my wa- I got this from my wife, and she liked it so much that I went out and got my own. You've been heavily involved in wearables where is that sector going, and especially since you mentioned health, what might these things mean for a sedentary, overweight nation?
3: It's, uh, I think it, the existing status of wearables means a lot for a sedentary, overweight nation, which is that it provides basic uh, information around things like how active you are, uh, what is your, uh, what's your pulse? How much sleep have you gotten? Things that are very basic in theory, but those pieces of information, when provided to people in easy-to-use formats with easy-to-use devices, change behavior for many many users. I, and could,
2: I could tell you from personal experience, when I had the original Fitbit, and I was doing 10, 15,000 steps a day, I became a little obsessive with it. And then I it, I had a couple of glitches with it, and I kinda got bored with it, and I put it down, and the phone is still tracking most of my travel. And I noticed that those 10,000 a day without something on your wrist just disappeared. And it once I got this back again, suddenly it's, all right, my office is down on 40th Street. We're on 58th Street. I don't need to take a subway. I could walk. And besides, that's going to add me 2,000 steps. It really makes a significant it difference. It really does.
3: The mindfulness piece of it, which you're mm-hmm. referring to, is really the key piece of the first generation of these things, which is Mm -hmm. really we're on maybe the first and a half generation of these things. So we started out with really basic trackers that did a pretty good job of tracking steps, but they were really electronic pedometers, if you will. right? And then they've married that with really easy-to-use mobile software, which makes you uh, able to look at a little bit more. They've added sensors to things, and I don't know uh, if you use the other ones that do things like your heart rate. Yep. You know, which is actually, for lots of people, quite interesting. What's my... 72. What's 72? I'm pretty chill right now. You're pretty chill. And and people sometimes say, when I'm working out, I should get to 130 or 140 beats a minute. Okay, how is that? You can drill into that in your mobile app after your workout and look at how that goes. The other uh, feature that I use a lot, and I don't know if you do, but many users do, and it actually has really influenced me, is the sleep function. My
2: wife uses that. I like to take off anything from my... Wedding band is the only jewelry <laughs> I have on it in, in bed.
3: But I, that's just a function of getting used to it. And I would So the sleep thing for me, as somebody that travels every week uh-huh. and has a lot of functions that I attend to and are in different cities a lot, I find particularly as uh, I'm not getting younger, my, my vibrancy, my health, everything seems to directly correlate with the number of hours of sleep I get, it seems. And so as an example, I was looking yesterday, I was talking to somebody about this uh, yesterday evening, I looked at my Fitbit uh, data on my phone yesterday as I was traveling someplace, And I noticed that it has been over a month since I've had more than seven hours of sleep. I said, you know, something is not good there. I got to fix that. Right. So there's a mindfulness piece of it there. You got a report at the end of the week says your average sleep has gone up or down since last week. And so those basic things that are being provided now materially change People's behavior. Where is it going, I think, is an, is the next step, and I think of it as around health. So there'll be, just as they added functions around things like pulse mm-hmm. and things like sleep, they, there will be things that will add things around blood pressure, perhaps, mm-hmm. blood sugar contact. You could add, imagine a whole series of sensors that get added into, whether it's a wrist device or something else. Right that feeds a central deposit uh, depository like a mobile application and the real key will be when that can be integrated into your health system if you will your doctor your if you imagine your doctor at some point getting your report about what's going on with you and and a check engine light if you will goes off and says right. hey barry you know looks to me like your blood sugar level's pretty low you might want to get home and get some you might want to get get something to eat or eat an apple or something, or, geez, your pulse is way high, you have the symptoms of somebody that looks like you might be having some heart issues that you might want to go to your doctor about. So if you think about some of where this is going, I think in the next phase Mm -hmm. is around this check engine light for yourself. So without getting too
2: graphic, I've read about sensors that can be put into a, a,
3: a toilet where
2: they can check things like blood sugar, and actually check for proteins associated with cancer. This is so small and doesn't have, you know, a giant battery, but I would imagine the next couple of generations of sensors are going to be able to pick up all sorts of stuff that, you know, hard to even imagine.
3: Yeah, the, the real trick in all this is figuring out what pieces of sensors people would be willing to wear or use Regularly, so that the data comes through regularly, because with periodic data isn't as valuable as regular data. Mm -hmm. So, there's this constant battle between battery life you know, so this ionic device lasts four or five days, right? You could put more sensors on it to do more things, it might last four or five hours. In which case, what do you need a watch for that lasts four or five hours? That's of no value to you. So, there's a they're the constant uh, push and pull and struggle and, and research is around how do you create sensors that identify things that make the form factor usable enough for people to wear on a regular basis.
2: Related to wearables, I have to ask the question, why did Google Glass flame out so spectacularly? It seemed like an interesting piece of tech, but it never caught on
3: except for some very specific niches. Yeah, I think it ties back to what we were just talking about with respect to sensors and battery life and usability. It appears as if the form factor never got to a point where people really wanted to wear it. It looked kind of geeky. It looked kind of weird. And, you know, what we've seen with the Fitbit devices, and I think will be applicable for a lot of wearables, is that the fashionable piece of this is very important. You know, can you – is this something that you would wear in public and – and and use um, so I think I think that might have impacted but, uh, Google Glass.
2: But the thought of a surgeon who has Google Glass on and wants to pull up a, you know, either the X-ray or the MRI or some other resource makes perfect sense for that.
3: Absolutely, I, I think what you what we'll see, particularly for those types of applications on the, I've seen something like that that's on the uh, construction floor where. Uh, actually, it was, I think it was something with Boeing or or Lockheed or something, where somebody who was putting together the n- intricate pieces of a wing of a plane can look at the through his glasses. Full blueprints. Like, through blueprints, right, on the, through his Amazing. glasses. So those are the types of applications that I think are easy to use, much more likely to have early success. I think the form factor for general commercial use hasn't quite got there.
2: And, and how significant is the Apple Watch as a player in this space? Because
3: your, your Fitbit watch, about the same form factor as the Apple Watch, same size. Yeah, the, everything Apple does is they do a great job. They have a real a loyal fan following. They're passionate. They make great products that their following loves. Um, you know, So they're, they're, a, they're a credible competitor, and I think that they will have and continue to be one of the real leaders in the wearable category for sure.
2: I want to talk a little bit about a fund associated with Revolution Growth called Rise of the Rest, O-R-T-R, and the concept is so intriguing. Most of the venture investing seems to take place in San Francisco and New York and Boston, but Revolution Growth does a bus tour, five cities, five days, $500,000, and they do sort of a local pitch competition tell us more about the idea behind that and who's driving that
3: literally driving it driving uh, the bus, the bus right. right so so the idea really is Steve Case's idea mm-hmm. um, and it's something that he's been and it, and it started as an idea and, and some activities around a bus tour. They've recently done their seventh bus tour. Really that many Wow and it's half a million per tour or half a million per city a half a million per tour, Mm -hmm. generally, although sometimes he finds a way to involve a couple of the runner-ups, sometimes get something as well, but apparently that's not to be known. So the activity really is Steve's, and it's one of a a personal passion of his, and it's one that the firm revolution has adopted generally, right? which is, in essence, the ideas around good Uh, company development and entrepreneurial spirit are not solely located in New York, Boston, and San Francisco, San Jose region. And if you look at where the distribution of capital is, about somewhere between 70 eighty, seventy and 80% of the venture capital money is spent in those three areas. Mm -hmm. And so there are a number of other great cities in the country that can and should be producing more entrepreneurial-based technology companies. It's important for the country, it's important for the people in those communities, and it's a real business opportunity. So Mm -hmm. we combine all those three, and that's really the impetus behind Rise of the Rest. Rise of the Rest has become much more than a bus tour, right? So it started really as a bus tour. It's now become a real platform of folks. There's a real team there, as you as you mentioned earlier. There's now a fund associated with it. H- hold on a sec. I just have to read a few of the names who are
2: affiliated with this fund because it's just Benoodles Jim Barksdale of Netscape, Jeff Bezos of Amazon. Tori Birch, Steve Case, Ray Dalio, John Dor, Henry Kravis, Michael Milkins, Sean Parker, Howard Schultz, Eric Schmidt, Meg Whitman. That's just the like first half, and the rest of it is just as impressive. How on earth did a group of rock stars like that come together to fund a concept like this? That's just a mind-blowing list of... Of investors.
3: It is an amazing list. I'm not sure that list of investors has ever been put together in a fund. And now I have another 22 uh, podcasts to do based just on that list. It, I think it speaks to the power of the idea. Uh, as the first phases of this were uh, the investments were funded mostly from Steve Case's personal um, resources. Mm-hmm. And as he traveled around the country and as he talked to people that he had known and worked with and interacted with, what he heard was geez, this is a great idea. I want to be part of it. And a decision was made about a year ago to, to institutionalize that activity, at least in terms of the deploying of capital, around a fund. And based on the names of people, you can imagine um, you know, they really thought that this was a powerful idea. They believe that it is important for the country, important for the growth of entrepreneurship across the country. I mean, anybody that runs companies in Boston, New York, and San Francisco knows that labor shortage tight. Mm-hmm. Hi- hiring and retaining engineers is tight. Um, cost of living. Cost of roof, living yeah. through the roof. So there's lots of things that make it challenging. There's Those are great places, and there are great companies, and there will continue to be. The, so the rise of the rest is not you know, sinking of these other places. It's that the uh, these other opportunities, there are places where new opportunities can be created, and we should be really sponsoring those. And so that's really what that's all about. The, there was a
2: New York Times article some weeks ago about a bunch of Silicon Valley venture capitalists who suddenly had become completely enamored with Detroit. The cost of living is incredibly cheap. There's a huge engineering and, and um, technology talent pool there that they didn't expect to see. How realistic is it to think of parts of the Midwest— Pittsburgh, Milwaukee, Detroit, and other cities outside of the core current technology venture capital areas, really developing a burgeoning tech scene.
3: I think it's very realistic, and I think we're seeing it. Two of the most exciting companies in our portfolio are in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Uh, Temp- I was just
2: in the West Loop, and it's on fire. It's amazing.
3: If you walk into, I think it's 600 West Chicago Avenue, where these two companies, Tempest and Uptake, are located. Mm-hmm. You would think you're in Silicon Valley. The offices are, you know, vibrant, and there's young folks coming in and out of the building all day long, and there's the activity level is really buzzing. So Chicago's for sure one of those areas that's coming along. Um, I've done some stuff down in Atlanta. Atlanta's coming along. L.A.'s coming along. Mm-hmm. Um We just did the investment in Tala that we referred to earlier, which is in Santa Monica, right outside of L.A. I mean, there's so that we believe that there are Pittsburgh is where Google has their autonomous. uh, And I think Uber has a lot of their autonomous work being done there. So a lot of these cities that have great universities, a lot of young folks, a supportive local community. They can do this, and and we're really starting to see this. So this isn't a press release. This is a real commitment to those we, areas. We
2: stayed in the hotel right across the street from the new Google building, and our office in Chicago is at a WeWorks right around the corner from that.
3: It's amazing. It really
2: is. Let's talk a little bit about the modern era of venture investing, because it seems so different than the 2000s with the housing boom and bust and the great financial crisis, and of course the insanity of the 1990s where we had the dot-com boom and bust and and, and that situation. I've noticed that lots and lots of companies are staying private much longer than they used to. The number of IPOs are down. Mm -hmm. What's the driver behind that? Well, as they say, probably part of it is because they can yeah. All that all that capital we talked around yeah. gives them an opportunity to not go public. Yeah, if there's they don't two want
3: reasons, really. I think is one is um, because of some of the regulations that's happened uh, around Sarbanes Oxley and other things. The cost and complexity of being a public company has gone up, mm-hmm. and so there's certainly some piece of it is that it's just difficult. It's expensive. Oftentimes, particularly technology-based companies, deprioritize building the infrastructure to support that over the next product, more right. sales and marketing, expand into international uh, activities and the like. And so, there's a part of it that is, "Hey, we don't want to do that." And then there's a what what. Has so innate- it's more. Let, let me interrupt
2: that, you. It's more than just regulations. It's building out human resources, accounting, payroll, compliance, all that stuff. They just want to capture market share and sell more and varied products.
3: Yeah, if you think about what drives a founder to start a company and what drives the founder every day to... Picking to, a new to payroll
2: p- company. That's p- what they're enthusiastic picking a, about.
3: Picking a cybersecurity expert right. and right. and reviewing compliance with uh, uh, Sarbanes-Oxley 401c or whatever. I mean, it's a for sure, there's some piece of it that is not prioritized with a lot of companies. So what... but. What has enabled it, I believe, as as you referred to earlier, is really the access of capital to allow for the growth without having to tap the public market. So, there's, But you as
2: difference. a venture capitalist, you as a person running a fund, you're looking for an exit eventually. I got to imagine that the big backers of shops like Uber aren't. Yeah, take your time. Whenever you get around to it, we'll be patient. I think these folks— are waiting for an exit, and Uber perhaps is a good example. If they would have gone public a year ago, they might have missed that whole, gee, here's a 40% haircut on your last high-water mark valuation.
3: Certainly could have been, and for sure venture investors have limited partners and in, uh, institutions that need money back at some point. That said, if you talk to a lot of them, I'm sure you hear from others, that if they find a great company that continues to grow at a fast pace and is continuing to gain market share in a developing opportunity, that's not something they wanna get out of quickly, right? So on some level, By these companies, the best of them, Mm. not going public, it allows some of these venture investors to hold longer and capture more of the upside where perhaps in previous years, if the company goes public, they're under a lot more pressure to sell their shares because there's a public market for that. Now I
2: recall in the 90s, and maybe that's an aberrational period, but every now and then a company would come public with a very fo- small float. Yeah. Perhaps that was the thinking behind it. All right, we'll sell 10% of our holdings, but we think this is worth a lot, and we don't really need the money, so we're willing to let it ride a little bit.
3: That's right, and and that was also, particularly in the 90s, really, the IPO event was much more of a financing event, mm-hmm. right? Which is they, had, they got access, you, sitting in boardrooms during that time, the question about when to go public was when do we need to raise our next round and what would be the benefits of being public? And some of them would be access to more capital, some of them would be we now have a public currency which we can use for acquisitions and the like. Mm-hmm. And with the the world that has changed now where there, there aren't five soft bank vision funds, but there are certainly five multi-billion dollar Uh, funds that are focused now on later stage uh, technology-based companies that are private. And so the availability of capital, uh, I can't imagine it's ever been more great than it is right now. Are we creating
2: a a giant dam behind which there's all this pent-up demand to go public or pent-up demand for for more companies, and at some point not too far off in the future— we're gonna see a wave of IPOs coming out?
3: I don't know, We've, there's been a lot of talk about this wave of IPOs for a number of years and mm. it doesn't seem to have happened. Uh, I do think some of these companies that are private, some of these big companies, Airbnb and others, they could go public anytime they want. Uh, they don't have to wait for a, a good market, a bad market, whatever. There are companies that are of size and scale. Many of them are achieving or past profitability. They're starting to show real leverage in their model. They're starting to show that they're they are able to add new products and new uh, services onto what they're doing in a very effective and efficient manner. They've built out their management team. So, they are operating almost as if they're a public company within the, within the shell of, within the, the veil of, of privacy, if you will. and. You know, so I think those will happen, whether they happen this month, next month, next year, it's unclear. So let's talk a little bit about
2: valuation. I've had other uh, VCs like Mark Andreessen tell me valuation is irrelevant. Their business model is looking for the needle in a haystack, and whether Facebook returns ten thousand times your initial investment or twenty thousand times, it's irrelevant. It pays for a lot of other um, investments that don't work out. You have the accounting background. What do you think of, of valuation when you're trying to choose amongst early stage companies?
3: Yeah, I, I guess maybe this is where some of my accounting background would probably put me in a slightly different uh, point of view there. I think as it relates to super early stage investments where you're really betting on a team and an idea, whether you invest at $2 million pre or $10 million pre probably doesn't matter too right. much. Uh, I think it starts to matter a lot more as you get further up the valuation train. So does it matter if you invest in the next best travel company that has a lot of traction at a 200 million valuation versus a billion valuation? I think it matters actually a lot in many instances, in actually most instances. It's easy to point to a Facebook and say, hey, you're gonna make 20,000 times your money, does it really matter if you make 10,000 times your money? Of course it does not. The, the the that's really an exception. Most of the companies follow into a much more predictable pattern of what they can exit at ultimately, mm-hmm. as you know. What does that
2: bell curve look like of those that don't make it, those that break even, and those that deliver a profit?
3: It depends when you invest. Uh, if you're pure early stage investors, most of them that are honest with you would tell you that certainly 30 or 40 percent of their companies never make it. Right. That's
2: the earlier stage, the much more challenging it is. You're really casting a wide net because so many of them are going to fail.
3: At the stage that we invest in, which is really the growth stage where there's been, there's lots of work left to be done, but there's a existing revenue stream, and there's a product in the marketplace where you can see things like margin and things like that, the failure rate should be much, much lower, should mm-hmm. be 10% of the th- companies. But you also lose the 50 or 100 times X because you're in at a higher valuation entrance right. point.
2: But you could still see a 10 or a 20X return, and that pays for a lot of companies that for sure. don't don't break even. For sure. We were discussing earlier about some of the companies that have stayed um private and i referenced uber what about a company like tesla that went public and just has this massive cash burn should they have stayed private and continued to tap uh the venture markets or did does this make sense for them
3: i i you know i don't know enough to know i don't know all the details of why they decided to do what they've do it seems to have worked out okay for them Uh, they're obviously going through some challenges now but people love the product. Mm-hmm. They've been able to access a lot of public funds. Um, Recently,
2: they just did another $3 billion bond, uh, bond offering that worked out pretty
3: well. And the CEO, Elon, is obviously one of the world's great visionaries that people want to back and want to support. Uh, so why they decided to go public when they did is, is not clear, but it seems to have worked out okay. For them. So you referenced
2: funding an idea and a team. Um, which is more important? Is it the idea that grabs your attention? Is it the team and how they execute? Or is it some ineffable combination?
3: Yeah, it, it, uh, I'm sure it's a, it depends a little different on each one. And I think it depends a little bit more on the stage of investment. So the earlier we go – the more it's simply dependent on the team right mm-hmm. so it's because what we find is great teams can find the opportunity you know if you're in a if you're in a general market area where you think there's a great opportunity and you have a superior team they will find where those nuanced opportunities will be they're almost never exactly where you start mm-hmm. i use this uh, analogy with a lot of people because my sons are all uh, they they're competitive sail racers, and uh-huh. I say when you're running one of these companies, you're you know where you need to go. You're at point A, and you need to get to point C. The problem is the people that. You don't realize that the captain of the ship, if you will, is actually in a sailboat, not a motorboat. So, so you have to go tacking, tacking, back and right? forth. And right. so if you try to go in a sailboat from point A to point C, if the wind's not exactly where you think it is, you ain't going anywhere. <laughs> right? And too many people say, geez, I know where I'm going, and I keep going, and I'm running into this wall. The really talented managers of these companies and founders – they say, geez, I know where I'm going, but I have to go here first and then there and then there, and I'm going to read the tea leaves along the way. And it's, it's actually fun to be a part of those. We have been speaking with Steve Murray. He is a partner at Revolution Growth Venture
2: Fund. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and stick around for the podcast extras, where we keep the tape rolling and continue discussing all things venture-related. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions, Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. You can check out my daily column at bloomberg.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.
0: You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time.
2: Welcome to the podcast. Uh, Steve, thanks so much for doing this. I I have a list of of questions we didn't get to. I have to... Um, bounce off of you before we start with our favorite questions. Um, You're New York and DC based. I have to ask, what's the difference between venture or even private equity firms on the East Coast versus those out in Silicon Valley? And I say this as a person who has been to a number of Silicon Valley venture firms. And every time I walk out of one of them, I kind of scratch my chin and say, "I I could live in California if I had to. I, I could survive this. In New York, it seems they're all in big offices and it's lovely and everything, but it's a totally different vibe."
3: Yeah, the 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 weather in uh, in Northern California is certainly superior to Boston or New York. I can doesn't say that for suck sure. to, it to doesn't say the suck. least. I agree with that. That's hundred percent agree. So I I actually think the differences between the coasts and how they approach things has changed a little bit over time and they have become more similar mm-hmm. partly is that some of the firms in the west coast have opened up new york offices and some of the firms in new right. york and boston have opened up silicon valley firms actually most of the successful firms on either coast now have a presence in the coast that they weren't in so i think there's some of that the, there's a little bit more of similarity that said i do think there is something to the you know the the old adage that they're m- the more risk tolerant on the west coast they're yeah, more okay. for sure and their the acceptance of failure is a little higher mm-hmm. and on some level particularly on the early stage i find that the west coast investors almost look like look at somebody's failure as a ceo as a badge of honor not right. as a
2: you know, a black mark. Hey, this guy tried. They went for it. They, they swung for the fences. Now, I just um, said this guy, and it's mostly been guys. Do you see any changes taking place with more women, more people of color, less, um, less just Male-dominated for sure. technology,
3: yeah, for sure. they less brotopia. Every everything from I mean, the venture from the venture firms themselves mm-hmm. uh, to the firms and the companies running. There's there's a clear uh, emphasis on diversity, and there's real business reasons for it. The research suggests that. You get people in a room with different points of view, and you come up with a better outcome. Sure. So less groupthink. I think there's a there's a lot a lot of ways to go there, and obviously there's been some some you know very public and bad stories that have come out in the last couple of years, but that's probably catalyzing change faster. Is my my guess.
2: So you sit at a unique perch where you're looking at things that are changing. What is the next industry? That's going to be disrupted. Is it healthcare? Is it financials and fintech, which I know is an area uh, you like? Is it even something like food or transportation? What What's the next disruption that's going to take place?
3: I well, I think there's all of those, but okay. so here's but uh, there's one that's maybe mo- more current that would okay. be an interesting topic to talk about, which is the Supreme Court will rule within the next thirty days on a a case called PASPA, which is the state of New Jersey sued the federal government essentially around a thing about states' rights, but depending on which way the Supreme Court rules, it could allow for legalized sports gambling Uh on a state-by-state basis.
2: Legalized sports gambling. So currently, there's gambling allowed in Las Vegas. You can bet on different um, teams and stuff.
3: Correct. isn't that is that not allowable on a state by state basis currently? So, so you you are now seemingly making the argument that New Jersey is making, which is why does Nevada get to allow for this and the other states not?
2: Doesn't make much sense there.
3: So that that's the essence of the conflict. Uh-huh. And there's lots of legal nuance, and you with your legal background would be able to read the briefings, I'm sure, and be able to summarize them. Dear but Lord, es- no. <laughs>
2: <laughs> under <laughs> and, no circumstances
3: in essence that is the the conflict that's being resolved or that's being that, that's at, at that issue right now the reason I think that's so important is that sports and the media around sports has changed so much in the last few years uh, how people engage with sports whether it's through the mobile device whether uh-huh. it's through uh, fantasy sports both uh regular league fantasy sports or daily fantasy sports like at DraftKings. The engagement with sports has changed so much over time, but the importance of sports to the television bundle and places Right, like the, it's live, it's them, nowhere else it's and, live you, and you you, you it's cut the else.
2: cord, you're not seeing live sports. That's right.
3: So that this is a big thing. Mhm. There's a strong opinion amongst many people that know much more about it than I do that the Supreme Court will, in fact, overrule this. Makes and, sense. And allow for states to decide on their own what they want to do. That will kick off an enormous game of musical chairs around who's doing what. Everybody wants to have their hand in that pie, the leagues. The The states want want taxes, sure. The operators, the media companies, everyone seems to be positioning there. There's a number of states that have already begun to file legislation in the event this passes. Wow. So this is a real game of musical chairs that could start any day.
2: And you think this will be explosive?
3: I think if it happens, it's going to be really interesting to watch.
2: I have a buddy, so I'm not a fantasy sports guy. And I'm too old to be the uh, Nintendo, I forgot the name of the um, the game where people were running around swiping things in... in um,
3: Pokemon Go. Po-
2: I, I'm too old to be a Pokemon Go sort of guy. But I have a buddy, shout, shout out to Len Parisi, who created a company that combined fa- fantasy sports with Pokemon Go. He got it patented. They were just funded. And essentially when you put your fantasy... NFL or basketball team together, you run around your city and you're, Oh, there's LeBron James and you're swiping him. Like he's a Pokemon go egg. When he told it to me, I said, dude, I don't do any of that stuff. And I got to think kids are going to love that. That just seems like a crazy good idea. Um, Is this the sort of insanity that we're going to be dealing with as all these different concepts cross fertilize each other and cross pollinate? You end
3: up with just a million, new ideas and a million new businesses it's very clear that if uh, from sports which is a big and important business in in the huge. us and, and internationally that the way in which the consumers consume that content has changed dramatically and will continue to change. That could be where things like virtual reality and augmented reality play Mm -hmm. a role, like with your friend's company. VR
2: and AI are going to apply to
3: this. You think about a situation where you're sitting at your house on a Friday night. You don't feel like going into the Yankees game, but maybe for $15, you can be essentially at the front row. In your, with put your headset on and you you're there. The game's going on. You hear it all. You see the ball flying by. There's those types of things. So there's a lot of ideas that are going on. What the consumers actually fall in love with? Who knows? I don't know. I have three teenage boys and they. I've never seen addictive behavior like theirs right now with a game called Fortnite. Of course, that's
2: it's just. (laughs) I've never seen it. And
3: so, but if a year ago somebody had shown me that game, I would have said, I don't see why right. somebody would want to do that. They and all their friends and everybody I know's friends play it all the time. So right. what consumers actually hang on to, I don't know. But there is, there has started to be and there will continue to be an enormous amount of innovation around the activities around sports because they're so popular, because the usage patterns have changed so much. And I do think this 60, 90, nobody knows what the number is, but it's a big, big number of billions uh-huh. that is... That is bet illegally in the U.S. through offshore. Oh, it's a lot
2: more than that. It's hundreds of billions of dollars. It's an insane it's amount an of insane money. It's an insane amount
3: of money. And that very soon could be, very soon measured in years, not days, uh-huh. could be now bet legally. Huh. That And so everybody
2: profits from it, taxes it, except for the you know, uh, Mark Twain called gambling attacks on the stupid. But except for the people on the losing end, there's a lot of activity that's going to take place. Well, and the and
3: people, the proponents of this would certainly say, well, there are people on the losing end of it now. Sure. So they, you're, not, you're not adding to the number of people. Of well, the you, might, you although, might be attracting more people once it comes out from the black could. market. That's certainly a reasonable guess. You certainly could be. I remember having a, uh, a conversation with somebody that's involved in one of the operators in Europe a good friend of mine who actually lives in New York here and he said you know what's interesting is he said when we have a a tennis match in Europe where the number 100th player beats the number 3 player we actually go to the logs and see who bet on what when, and if there's some unusual activity if that happens here in the US what do you how do you find any data about you what don't. happened you actually it doesn't so
2: exist it's a way to keep the sport clean that's right and, you know, uh, there are currently enough 12-step programs, um, certainly for for Angry Birds and Candy Crush, that if it gets to be a problem, someone—and I don't mean to make light of this. I know there are people yeah, who have issues with it, but um, it's fascinating to, to see what takes place. So, so that's one area, sports. Give me one more area, and then we'll jump to our favorite um, questions. What else do you see as the next area that perhaps people aren't paying attention to Well, and, we we and could we, really
3: li- we really like uh, a lot of the areas of um in fintech and infant fintech fintech yeah oh in within fintech yeah within fintech i thought you meant like
2: newborn technology <laughs> i'm like what what are we doing with <laughs> no newborns? not infant tech. In-, in fintech in fintech so, so give us a couple of examples.
3: So a couple of examples is our most recent investment in in Tala. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tala, as I mentioned, what, what so what we like to see is what are they doing now that has changed the fundamental value proposition of what is being offered? So as an example, this company is taking information that exists on somebody's phone mm-hmm. for people that are jet, almost... A, almost universally do not have a bank account, and they're making a a credit decision based on that activity.
2: Just so you give them access to your phone, and they determine based on what you're doing with your daily... Yeah, you say,
3: can you give me access to these five things? They say, yes, please. I would like a loan of X. They say, okay, based on that, I've correlated that activity with other people, and this means that you're good or not a good credit risk.
2: I actually read something about an attempt to create a credit score based on your social media activity. Anything along is that similar
3: to that's, this, or yes, or is that part of the that same is concept? Part of the same concept, which is how can you use and it it informs a lot of the investment decisions we make in the companies that we like a lot, which is are you using the availability of data that either didn't exist previously or wasn't ex- didn't exist at the pace at which it exists now to do something different? Mm-hmm. Um, we have a company in Chicago that we talked about a couple times, Uptake, which is using data from sensors on industrial equipment to do things like tell you that the tractor that's going across the farm in Iowa is just about ready to have a problem. You better go change that oil or you're going right. to... And so things like that, those are amazing opportunities within industries that previously didn't have a lot of technology. Now there's data, but somebody has to do something with
2: industrial it. Industrial self-diagnostic uh, equipment. Correct. That That's just wild. Yep. Um... Fascinating. And and Venmo-type stuff where you're, you're move, swapping money back and forth without a bank in the middle, that's is, right. is that really going yeah, to become Yeah, that's happening. Not in... counting crypto, that's... just talking <laughs> right. uh, on an app that
3: theoretically is hackable. Are people going to be able to trust that? Well, that, that's the question. I think there's a lot of those activities that happen, and then there's an event, and then there's, can you trust them? Can you not... There is obvi- There is no question a, a growing uh, concern, appropriately so, around where does my data sit, who has access to it, um, how do I protect against that? And part of that is an operational thing, and part of that is a cybersecurity thing.
2: Right. There was not too long ago a Wall Street Journal article about these crypto billionaires who have created these bunkers for the secure storage of their codes and drives and things like that because legitimately these things can get stolen and uh, they just have to hope there's no EM, uh, uh, electromagnetic pulse that wipes out the hard drive. But other than that, um, that that's fascinating. All right, so let's jump to our favorite questions. I ask these of all our guests and, and let's jump right into this. Tell us the most important
3: thing people don't know about you or your background the most important thing people don't know about me that they would be surprised to know perhaps Mm -hmm. given the nature of what I do. And so I'm a pretty energetic guy and I travel a lot and I see a lot of companies and I sit a lot of boards and I do a lot of outwardly facing things and I'm a pretty introverted person that I think most people would not expect.
2: Yeah, I would not have
3: guessed that if I had to to make a guess. Who were some of your early mentors? Well, I've been amazingly fortunate that um, I've had so many people in my career that have taken a real uh, care about my career and me as a person. And so there's a long list of them. But I started at Deloitte, and that was really um, folks like Steve Richards and uh, Bill Platt and Susan Rayo and Gib Hammond and others. But each one of them, I still to this day bring something to the table from them. Uh, at SoftBank, and probably my best mentor, and will be forever my best mentor, is Ron Fisher, who's still at SoftBank, who I had the uh, pleasure of working with for for 20 years. Um, I got to Brad Feld was a mentor way back. He started mm-hmm. at SoftBank way back when. Then he and I continue to be friends. And and he's currently
2: at a um... Foundry Foundry
3: mm-hmm. Group. He's the you know really the managing partner at Foundry. They've been hugely successful, and he and I are work on a, a, something together now. And you know, one of these guys that's just such a honest and straightforward and involved guy. Um, I've had the pleasure of working with him and learned a ton from him. Uh, although he wasn't a day-to-day mentor, having exposure to Masa over the years has certainly influenced me in a great way. So I've been very, very fortunate. I've had people that, you know, now I have Ted Leontis and Steve Case who who uh, I learn from every day. I, I think one of the things that... Um, is so great about this business that we're in is that I get exposed to brilliant people every day that are either running these companies Mm -hmm. on the board, people that I work with. And so I literally feel like I learn something new every day.
2: And uh, let's talk about venture investors. Who has influenced your approach to making these investments?
3: Yeah, so I'd say Masa has influenced uh, my approach originally. His, and the influence there was his boldness his willing to take enormous risk against the grain. Uh, he 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 was buying, you know, he was buying, you know, mobile companies when uh, that wasn't uh, the right the the, the thing to do out of favor, if you will. Um, he has very, you know, he raised a hundred billion dollar fund when everyone is saying, "Geez, we must be at the end of a cycle." Right, right. So this is a person that his boldness. Um, is really inspirational on some level. I, as I mentioned earlier, Brad Feld is somebody that's influenced my investing style. He His is very much understand the the company, the product, the people, walk the hallways, see where things are going. Another guy that influenced my investment style that's here in New York is a guy named, uh, actually two people, one uh, Eric Hippo, who runs Lair Hippo Ventures, who um, is sort of the ultimate Uh, professional you know he everything starts on time and ends on time and decisions get made and you don't second-guess your decisions and you and you put you're very uh, matter-of-fact and non-emotional businesses Mm -hmm. you have to make decisions and you have to move on and you have to go to the next one Uh, I've admired I've admired him a lot I've admired uh, you know I've worked with and he still remains a great friend a guy who just recently was the CEO at Forbes Mike uh, Perlis Mm -hmm. who's a great friend of mine who Really is a real people person. You know, he is the guy that walks the hallways and says, "This guy and this guy don't seem to be getting along, and this gal is having a problem here." And how can I engage myself and help this company? And he's all about leadership and clear vision and direction. And so, from each one of these person, I've learned something different.
2: Let's talk about books. Tell us about some of your favorite books, be they finance or technology, or not fiction, nonfiction. What do you read? What are you enjoying?
3: Yeah, sure. So. Uh, I actually mostly don't read about finance and technology because I live it every day. Right. Uh, but And time is short. But I actually get to read a lot because I travel a lot. So I read, I think I've read every John Grisham book, and I love them because they're fun and they're easy, and you can read them in a in a long flight or two. and right. So they're great. Um, I'm, I've read a couple recently that I really like. One is that I've probably many people have read, which is uh, The Boys on the Boat. I like that because I'm a team guy. I'm a sports guy. I mm-hmm. love I love how people can overcome adversity and gang together and and accomplish something and I get you know goosebumps on my back every time I hear those stories and I read about success and things like that so that that's a book that I've recently uh, reread and enjoy it. I'm also reading I just finished a book uh, that I that has a real influence on me called uh, Being Mortal mm-hmm. which is about really it's a it's a book written by a doctor about the the way, frankly, that we may have screwed up the aging process. We're treating the aging process as if it's a disease, not a condition. Right, And it's fascinating. So I like reading all kinds of different things. I, I read
2: al- something about that book, and if I'm remembering it correctly, part of the book is doctors die differently than lay people do because they understand what we do wrong. Am, am I recalling the right
3: that, one? It may be, but really the point of the thing of the of the article was that or the book was that we've made so many advancements in medicine that has allowed us to treat things. Mm-hmm. And we have therefore when somebody gets older and they have a condition we treat them as if they're 25 years old and they might have 70 more years to live.
2: That doesn't make any and it, sense.
3: what we end up doing as a society is we end up making the last five years of somebody's life probably miserable where they're going mm-hmm. through surgeries and all kinds of other things, the likelihood of materially extending their life is not long. And you spend enormous resources doing it. Something like 80% of the healthcare costs are incurred in the last 20% of people's lives. Right. And so there's all these things. And, and so instead of that, what he proposes is something more along the lines of what, hospice and others do, which is to say, what's important to you? And how do I create an environment for you to enjoy as best you can your last mm-hmm. remaining piece of Ma- your life? Makes a lot of sense. Very we, profound.
2: We, we talked about what, what excites you. Tell us what changes you're looking forward uh, to the world of, of venture investing and startup. What what are How is the industry itself shifting into the future?
3: yeah, they, well, we've talked about a number of it. The companies are are they are staying private longer. The mm-hmm. holding periods, therefore, are longer. So the idea of investing today and returning capital in a year or two is is much different. The size of the funds seems to be extending, I think partly due to that, which is that people are saying, geez, I have to be able to build a firm to support a a company, particularly my best ones, from soup to nuts. I don't want to miss out. I've talked to a number of early-stage investors who have now started to create follow-on investment funds because some of their best companies that otherwise would have been private or sold are now still private companies raising money, and they want to participate in those, but they don't fit within the constructs of their early-stage small fund. They, They are now adding different people call it different things, a select fund or a follow-on fund or something like that. So I I think the, the things that are changing are how do you serve the needs of the company in a better way given the changing landscape that we exist in. A lot of it is international too. I think that'll be another thing that we'll see more of, which is more firms, just as we've talked about earlier, more of the East Coast firms now have a West Coast presence. And likewise, I actually think more of the US firms will have an international presence over time.
2: Europe, Asia... Correct. Middle East, et cetera. Right. Tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience.
3: Well, I fail every day in something, uh, right. particularly, and I'm reminded of that by my three teenage sons. Uh, I think I actually fail more in their eyes uh, every uh, as they get older, uh, although I think my older one that's 18 now is starting to come out of that phase. I think he's realizing that I'm not quite as dumb as he might have thought a year or two ago. Right. But
2: I noticed that the older I got, the smarter my parents got. So yes. there's some correlation Yes,
3: uh, it, it is an interesting correlation. A topic for another one, perhaps. Um, I'd say the two or three times that I've failed in terms of an investment, badly is when uh, and what I've learned about it is really the value of people's ethics and people's integrity Mm -hmm. and so in a couple of different situations where we've where we've you know where I have known that the person that we were dealing with was something less than the type of quality individual that I want to be associated with I'm sort of O for life on things like that Really. so that's happened to me twice where I sort of knew that the person wasn't going to be the kind of person I really wanted to work with. But, you know, the opportunity was exciting and the progress in the business was great. And in both cases, it's come to bite me right back in the behind.
2: Hmm. Uh, What do you do for fun when you're not in the office? What do you do to kick back and relax?
3: Well, I I mentioned my three sons. So I have three sons. Mm -hmm. Uh, Two of them are in high school. So I love to... And then I have another one in seventh grade. I love to spend time with them. I love to go to their sporting events. I love... Uh, for many years, I was the coach of their hockey team. Mm -hmm. So I enjoy contributing and participating with the kids and their friends and doing that kind of stuff. I like to work out. That's sort of, I find, uh, like we talked about earlier with sleep, the other thing that correlates to happiness for me, uh, seems to be if I can get a workout in. So I try, I I love to work out. I love to be outside. I love to be, uh, I love to fish and that kind of stuff, but I really like spending time with my family.
2: If a millennial or a recent college grad came up to you and said they were interested in a career in venture investing, what sort of career advice would you give them?
3: It's it's a question that I get as you might imagine a lot from millennials and recent college grads, friends of friends and and others. The the good and bad news, I think on on that particular question is the honest answer is there's no clear, easy path into the venture community. Uh, some folks have, as you pointed out earlier, my background is not sort of classic out of that. there's so there's people that have come from legal backgrounds and accounting backgrounds and they've come from product backgrounds and they've come from banking backgrounds. So there really is a collection of different types of people that have come through it. what I would advise what I do advise them to do is if if you're passionate about, uh, startups, then get involved in one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that could be as um, small as um, volunteering, if you will, or helping out at the local tech stars or something like that. Or it could be maybe uh, on nights and weekends, you're helping your friend that's doing it. This isn't it saying you have, not everybody is ready to say, I'm going to move to Silicon Valley and do your thing. If that's what you want to do, go do it.
2: So it's not, it's not just Go to a big school, get a degree in finance and engineering, and you're ready. No, there's a lot
3: of different paths, and they all can lead to different things. And I think some firms obviously have more of a technology, product, engineering bend. Some Some firms have more of a- uh, investment banking, Ben. Some firms, I think the best ones have a mix of other. Some people have more operators. Mm-hmm. I think the best firms, really, as we talked about earlier, with diversity, diversity of experiences is important. But it's it's uh, it's a tricky path because there isn't a clean one where you can say, go get this degree and get this job and you'll end up at this place. It's not I, my experiences. It's not quite that. It, easy. It's not
2: like there are thousands and thousands of VCs and millions of open slots. It's a pretty small, That's small right. community too. And and our final question, what do you know about the world of venture investing today that you wish you knew 20, 30 years ago when you were first getting started?
3: I guess the easy answer would be uh, Amazon, Facebook, <laughs> Google, right?
2: Well, that's that's <laughs> hindsight. What should you have bought 30 years ago? But but what did you learn from non? Was Amazon an option? Did you say pass? No. By the way, there was a thing that I started noticing not too long ago. Maybe it was long ago that a lot of the websites of various venture firms list. these are all the companies we passed on. Uh-huh. and it's just an insane list of the great. We passed on Apple, eBay, Amazon.
3: Why why share that? So it's a little self-deprecating, but also they uh, probably don't list. here are the other. 15 times that list that we passed on that somebody else thought was a great idea that failed, right? Mm-hmm. So there, there's an equal number of those. So sometimes the best deals, as they say, are the ones that you don't do. So let, so, me, so, let me bring it back yeah, to yeah. what, what I
2: 25 years ago stands out. What would have been really helpful to know 25 years ago? Not a crystal ball about the future, but part of your process. So what,
3: one of the things that I think I have uh, learned over time is that uh, people don't change, right mm-hmm. as much as they would like to people talk about changing but it's hard it's changing people is very very hard right not people you can move deck chairs around but the the fundamental <laughs> things that drive people to behave a certain way very hard to change so don't waste a lot of time trying to do that secondly is that uh, failure of these companies that are doing this really really hard stuff is is okay they can adjust they can do things. That I think I was, like most people, naive that the business plan is the one that they should go execute on. You spend all this time, you get trained along the way, there's going to be a business plan and here's how we're going to do step A and step B and step C. And I, I, I've realized over time, that never works, so don't show me a 50-page business plan because I don't want to see it. Tell me about how you're thinking about things. How do you think about challenges? How do you think about opportunities? And those are the, those are the things that I wish I knew.
2: Huh, quite, quite fascinating. We have been speaking with Steve Murray. He is a partner at Revolution Growth, a early-stage venture capital firm. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes at any of the other 200 such conversations that we've had. You can find any of them, iTunes, Bloomberg.com, Overcast, wherever finer podcasts are sold. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I would be remiss if I did not thank our crack staff who helps put together this podcast each week. Uh, Medina Parwana is my audio engineer slash producer. Uh, Taylor Riggs is our booker, and Michael Batnick is my head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.